podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the Church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Eric Stanley on defending religious freedom in America. Eric is an attorney with Provident Law in Scottsdale, Arizona. Previously, he served as senior counsel and the director of the Center for Christian Ministries at Alliance Defending Freedom. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2014 General Assembly. Let's listen as Eric teaches on the legal issues surrounding religious liberty. All right. Good morning. Glad to see you all here. And um, just how many of you have ever heard of Alliance Defending Freedom before? Several of you. Great. Good. For those of you that haven't, uh, let me just give you a a very brief overview of who we are and and what we do. Um, We are a uh, really an alliance building legal ministry. That's what we are. Um, All we do uh, is to work in three different areas. We protect religious freedom, uh, the sanctity of human life, and marriage and the family. And we're a group of attorneys dedicated to doing that. We were started in the early 1990s uh, by a a group of Christian leaders, um, Dr. Bill Bright, James Dobson, D. James Kennedy, uh, many others, uh, who got together and realized kind of that that America needed a, a, a counterweight to the ACLU. Uh, and that for many, many years, there were, um, the, you know, the ACLU and its allies had gone unchecked and uh, had had too many uh, victories in the court systems. And so needed a counterweight to the ACLU. And so that's why uh, ADF was born. Uh, we used to be known as Alliance Defense Fund. Uh, so many of you may have heard that name. Uh, that's who we used to be known as. Uh, but that was confusing. Uh, you know, I would check into hotels and they would say, what company are you with? I'd say Alliance Defense Fund. And... I'd get everything from, oh, you're an insurance salesman, or, oh, you're a defense contractor, or (laughs) something like that. So it was confusing, and and we wanted to uh, pick a name and select a name that was somewhat uh, more uh, plain about what what it is that we do. And so our name really says what we do. We are an alliance. We're not in this together. We are in this with like-minded individuals, organizations, churches, lawyers, law students, um, all across the country and now the world, uh, and we defend freedom. Uh, that's really what we do. Uh, I have been litigating in the field of religious liberties for uh, the last uh, 15 years and uh, have been privileged to actually litigate numerous cases um, across the country involving churches and pastors. Uh, and that's what I focus my uh, practice on now. Uh, I direct what's called the Church Project at ADF, Uh, What that is, is we do, uh, it's a dedicated team of attorneys that all we do is protect the constitutional rights of pastors and churches. Uh, And that may seem a little odd 
uh, these days. Um, and you may think, well, is there enough to keep you busy? And unfortunately, there's more than enough uh, to keep us busy. Uh, our team uh, are in the court system all across the country. Uh, in fact, uh, I uh, just in the last week uh, have been uh, wrapping up a case in Georgia uh, where a, a church uh, encountered some problems with the zoning code in uh, Rockdale County, Georgia, which is just a suburb of Atlanta down in um, Conyers. And uh, in there, the, uh, the church was told uh, it, w- it located in a storefront because it was a very small church. Most, a lot of churches, you know, find the cheapest space you can that's the most visible, and sometimes a storefront is what that is. And so the church located in a storefront, and uh, the, uh, the county said, well, you can't be there because we have this ordinance. And the ordinance said that, no, uh, that churches had to at least have three acres to locate on. Uh, in order to even exist in the county, you had to have three acres. Uh, now, many of you may have been involved in church plants or church starts. And you know how difficult that is uh, to have any kind of funds uh, to, to have a three-acre piece of property. Uh, and this church, of course, didn't. And so the county kicked them out. They went to another location. The county kicked them out of there. They were kicked out of three separate locations and finally ended up in the basement of a jewelry store um, and the church membership by that time had run down to about a third of what it was, uh, and uh, very, very small. So we filed a lawsuit against the county uh, to have the zoning code declared unlawful, and we won. And just last week, we were able to wrap up the case uh, and get the church damages so that they could move back to a storefront and, and get going again. Um, and then just last week, um, I've been litigating in a case in Hawaii involving uh, churches who use public schools. And uh, those churches are being now sued by some atheists uh, who desire to kick the churches out of the public schools of Hawaii. And they've come up with a kind of a a pretty interesting um, plan, which is to accuse the churches of fraud by saying that the churches have underpaid rents that are due to the public schools. Uh, And so over the last six years, they're claiming millions of dollars in underpaid rents and damages and fraud. Uh, even though the churches have paid everything that was due, uh, but yet we're having to defend that lawsuit. Now, we were able to get the heart of it thrown out, but it's still going to go on. Um, and so these are, these are just a couple of the cases, just even in the last week that I've been dealing with, uh, that should give you a little bit of a picture of some of the things that some churches are facing across the country. Uh, and so one of the things that, that is very clear is that the church in America is under attack. And that may seem odd again uh, because it might not have come to your church or you, you may not be exactly feeling it right away. But it is true. Um, and some of the ways that the church is really facing problems these days uh, are related to uh, the institution of same-sex marriage and the homosexual agenda. Uh, many of you were aware of the Supreme Court's decision last year in United States versus Windsor and in the Prop 8 case in California. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom was uh, blessed to be able to uh, help defend those lawsuits, excuse me, against those lawsuits. But the U.S. v. Windsor decision last year where the, where the United States Supreme Court struck down <coughs> a portion of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act um, was not the final institution of same-sex marriage on the country, uh, but it was the prelude to that. Uh, And it very much signified that that's the direction the court was heading uh, and that the next case that would come before the court would be the one 
to finally uh, say that uh, the Constitution of the United States mandates same-sex marriage uh, on the country. The homosexual agenda is uh, something that's very troubling and very concerning to religious freedom. Um, I have been saying for years, and colleague, my colleagues have been saying for years, that the, uh, the homosexual agenda, the, the end goal is not the institution of same-sex marriage. Uh, the end goal of the homosexual agenda is the silencing of dissent. And this makes sense just from a biblical perspective as well, if you think about it. Uh, you think about the progression of sin that Romans 1 talks about, that uh, Paul talks about in Romans 1. Uh, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They layer over the truth in unrighteousness. And it progresses and progresses from there um, and it, to the point where uh, they demand that uh, those around them uh, acknowledge and approve of their sin in order to cover up what God has laid on their heart, which is that this is sin, and we know that it's sin. And so many uh, in the homosexual agenda have that view that not only do we have to have the institution of same-sex marriage, but we must have a society that approves and accepts uh, verbally of, of what we're doing in our lifestyle. And uh, that's a head-on collision with the church. Uh, it really is. And I'm going to talk about some of these things uh, today uh, in relation to that. One of the other things that is <clears throat> a, a portion of that is regard to the special rights ordinances concerning sexual orientation. So many have many cities and counties, <clears throat> excuse me, and states have statutes or ordinances that prohibit discrimination in housing or employment uh, or places of public accommodation involving things like. Um, race, sex, national origin, religion, those kinds of things. Those are usually widely accepted. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but uh, there have been a move for the last 10 or 15 years to add the categories of sexual orientation uh, and or gender identity in there. Um, and uh, these are very concerning uh, to the church, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that going forward. Um, state interference with church government. Uh, some issues in regarding that uh, in terms of uh, how does the church, the ability of the church to govern itself uh, and to make its own decisions, uh, specifically also in relation to employment discrimination. Uh, can a church select its own pastor, uh, its own ministers, and can they lead um, according to biblical guidance of the church and the doctrines of the church? Uh, or are churches subject to these discrimination ordinances and laws such that they they really have to accept uh, a position of employment uh, that may not coincide with biblical beliefs of the church. Uh, and then I mentioned a case involving church land use discrimination as well. That is a big issue. Um, it, is, it is a big issue because uh, churches have, every church at some point uh, in its life will encounter a land use issue, probably more than once uh, as churches move, expand, grow, change, uh, every church is going to have to have land. Uh, the, the, the space to freely exercise your religion is um, part and parcel of the free exercise of religion. Uh, so uh, there's numerous cases going on about that. Such, it, it, you know, and, and let me just mention too, um, because it isn't really the focus here, but uh, in terms of land use, uh, Congress passed a law called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act back in 2000. It was widely... Um, accepted among the houses of Congress and, passed and signed by President Clinton. And it's a great law that provides great protection for churches in the land use context. 
And so if you're facing that or if your church is or if you know of another church that is, um, let us know because there are things, there are great protections for churches uh, from discriminatory land use ordinances. And there are a lot of them. Everything from the three-acre limit case that I mentioned uh, where churches have to have a certain limit of ac- or a certain amount of acreage before they can exist, uh, all the way to, uh, you know, just kind of the, the conditions that are put onto churches where you can only operate during these hours, you can only have this amount of people in your sanctuary, you can only do this, that. You know, a lot of these things create a substantial burden on churches. Uh, so that's something that we're focused on. So one of the things that I want to focus on today because a lot of churches today, it seems like there's a push on. There's a push to push the church back into the four walls of the church uh, and to limit its exposure in the community. Um, and, and many churches um, tend to kind of cower a little bit. And so, you know, I want to figure out how, how, talk about today, how can we turn the church from this into this? Now, how can we make the church the robust, muscular advancement of the gospel machine that, that Christ intended? Uh, and in, in a culture that seemingly is saying to the church, um, no, you are not a vital partner in the community anymore. Um, one of the pastors that I talked to uh, and, and uh, was, was speaking to another group of pastors, and he said, you know, the church in America is not the home team anymore. And, and that's probably a good way to put it. You know, we're not the home team anymore. Uh, and I think it's time that we recognize that, but it's time that we not shrink back uh, and that we figure out how do we adapt and how do we change to fit this culture that we find ourselves in. Uh, and that's what I want to talk about today. Um, some practical things uh, in terms of um, something, some things that churches can do uh, and should be doing. And you've got a document there that I've, I've passed out uh, entitled five bylaw, or five bylaw Statements All Churches Should Have. Uh, And these are things that we think are very helpful for churches, uh, and I want to focus on some of these um, in regard to some things that churches can do to proactively protect yourself. Uh, The first one is a statement of religious belief regarding marriage and human sexuality. Uh, This is something that does not frequently appear uh, in church doctrinal statements, uh, or it hasn't historically. And there's good reason for that, because it really hadn't been an issue. Um, going forward. In fact, if you were to go back and look at your church's doctrinal statement, if it hasn't been updated or changed, uh, probably within the last 10 or 15 years, uh, this type of statement would not be in your bylaws or your doctrinal statement. But I believe that every church needs to have it. Uh, And the reason for that is because if your church is ever confronted on the issue, what are your religious beliefs regarding marriage? What are your religious beliefs regarding human sexuality? Uh, it is always easier from a legal standpoint to be able to point to a very clear, succinct statement uh, of the church's doctrine on those issues. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you don't have this in your bylaws or in your doctrinal statements that you're somehow doomed. It doesn't mean that. But it also means that uh, as an attorney, one of the things that I like is if I'm defending a church, uh, I want to be able to have the, have the document. I want to be able to show the court. Uh, this is what this church believes. It is beyond dispute. Because one of the things that we still have in, in, in America is uh, the doctrine of what's called the doctrine of church autonomy, uh, which basically means church independence. Uh, and it is a doctrine that is to prohibit courts from peering into and second-guessing the religious doctrine of a church. 
So if a church has its religious doctrine very clearly spelled out, uh, then there's no question. And the judge is going to look at that and say, I'm not going to second-guess that. That's the church's religious doctrine. It's their religious beliefs. Uh, it's very clearly, easily stated. Um, moving on. Some of the ways that this might arise in terms of a church would be uh, in employment dis- uh, issues. Uh, you know, there have been cases involving um, a music minister who all of a sudden you find out is in a relationship that doesn't align with what the church's doctrinal positions are uh, on either marriage or human sexuality. And, uh, you know, they then raise a claim of discrimination, employment discrimination, when they're terminated or when they're counseled or, or something along those lines. Uh, and uh, it's very easy for the church to be able to point to and say, this is our religious belief regarding marriage and homosexuality. Um, and that way, it will very clearly spell that out. Uh, Another issue that I'm going to talk about that this will be helpful is in regard to facilities usage. Um, you know, can a church specifically say to uh, you know, the community when you're asked, no, we do not allow same-sex weddings in our facility? Uh, if that's your church's belief, then, then uh, stating that very clearly and making that very clear is very important. Um, another statement that is very important to have for churches in your bylaws or, or policies or something along those lines is to identify a governing body that is the sole interpreter of Scripture. So, you know, that may be the, uh, the denomination. Uh, it may be uh, in some churches that are more uh, independent, uh, you know, like some of the Southern Baptist churches. It might be uh, the, the pastor. It may be a, a particular body, a group. Um, but you want to be able to point to someone that is, is the interpreter of scripture, interpreter of doctrine for the church. Uh, and the reason for this is because there are things that arise that the church may not be, have a clear statement of religious belief on. Uh, for instance, how many of you, and let's just have a quick show of hands here, how many of you have a doctrinal statement on transgenderism? Yeah, I mean, most churches don't. Actually, I think probably 100% of the churches probably don't. <laughs> Uh, but that is, a, that is quickly becoming a very, very uh, large issue uh, for churches and employers. Um, you know, what do you do um, if an employee uh, decides, um, you know what, I'm no longer a male, I'm transitioning to a female? What do you do with that? And so in that respect, um, you know, some of those things are very difficult because y- you can't always draft everything. Um, you know, it's, it's impossible to, to kind of foresee into the future and say, well, these are all the issues that we're going to come into contact with, and so these are our religious beliefs on all of these issues. So this is really just a backstop, is really what it is. You know, hey, we abide by the doctrinal statements of the Presbyterian Church in America, you know, whatever that may be. Um, you know, it's a backstop. It really is to protect the church um, to, you know, if there's ever into question, what are the church's religious beliefs? If you find yourself in the middle of litigation and you're kind of trying to, you know, prove up to the court what are your religious beliefs, this is really um, something that would be very helpful. Uh, and, uh, and so this is just, again, something that's a backstop. I'm not going to spend really much time here on these next three other than just to mention them. And you all may have these already. Um, but we're, we are advising churches uh, to uh, have a formal membership policy, uh, a procedure for member discipline or membership revocation 
and a procedure for rescinding membership. Uh, and let me just explain to you a little bit about why this is important um, in order to understand kind of why you need these things or why you should have these things or update them if you, if you haven't in a while. Um, but these three things are, uh, there was a case in, in Oklahoma a while back involving a church member of a church of Christ who uh, it became known to the leadership of the church that she was in, involved in an extramarital relationship. She was single, uh, but she was involved in an adulterous relationship with, another, with a man who was married uh, who just so happened to be the mayor of the town <laughs> that they were in. Uh, very sticky situation. And uh, they confronted uh, the woman who was a member of the church, the elders did, and said, uh, you, need to, you need to cease and stop this relationship. And uh, she refused. Um, and so they kind of took it through what their, their view of Matthew 18 and the, the church discipline steps were. Uh, and uh, it got to the point where they told her, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to tell it to the church uh, because you're unrepentant. And she hired an attorney, and the attorney sent a letter to the church and said she hereby resigns her membership effective immediately. Um, do not expose this, uh, or you could be liable for an invasion of privacy, infliction of emotional distress, all these other things. Well, the church went ahead and did it. I told it to the church uh, and said, you can't, you, know, you can't do that. You can't avoid church discipline just by doing so. Uh, the case drug on for years and years, and it went all the way up to the Oklahoma Supreme Court. And what the Oklahoma Supreme Court held was that the church, for the time that she was a member, the Oklahoma Supreme Court would not second-guess or question how the church operated its discipline procedures and how it dealt with its members. But when she resigned her membership, the church had you know, no authority to be able to then say to her, no, we're still going to discipline and do these things. Um, and, and really what they said was, well, people have a constitutional right to join themselves to a voluntary member, uh, uh, membership group like a church, and they have a right to withdraw themselves. And uh, that was really what the court held. So uh, in, in this regard, it's, it's important. You can have things like, you know, look, in the middle of a, in the middle of a discipline proceeding, you, you can't resign your membership. Um, you know, those are, that's something that you could put in there as long as, and maybe have the membership sign off on that, that they understand that and agree to that when they become members. Um, or if you don't want to have that, um, then just know that if a, if a member resigns the membership in the middle of church discipline, uh, you need to be extremely careful as to how you take care of that going forward. So membership issues are something that are very important, and you'll see, you'll see a lot of that. There's, there's some written discussion of that in the materials that, are, that you have there. Um, there's also some policies that are, yeah. It, yeah, I'm sorry, I should have said that, absolutely. Yeah, right. 
position. And I guess my question to you is, at least within the context of the bylaws, and this is where decisions are going to meet in terms of how you use the facility and things like that. That's right. And determination. Do you want to identify your local church? Your, I mean, we could go three levels. We could go local church and P PCA, presbyteries, or general assembly. Any suggestions on how to navigate? Yeah. Uh, because just the one other point with that is, at the formation of the PCA, it was very important to say that the local church has ownership and rights as a corporation individually over their particular piece of property. So as far as the property goes, it's not a denomination decision. Right. It's a local church decision. Just yeah. Any, any insight on yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the only thing that you would want to be careful about, or, or not necessarily careful, I think what you would want to consider, um, you, you haven't necessarily set up a conflict between one and two up here, um, other, unless the denomination itself is saying something contrary to what you would say. So if your denomination is in line with what your religious beliefs would say on that, that the local churches, then I think you're, you're fine. Um, you know, if that ever becomes a conflict, then I think you've got bigger problems <laughs> in terms of uh, where you're going as a church and as a denomination, those kinds of things. And, and, you know, many churches have those, many denominations, or some denominations have those. We've seen the Episcopal Church, you know, deal a lot with that uh, over the last many years. Um, so, you know, the question then is, if it's in line with what the denomination says, you're fine. And you could say, our religious belief regarding marriage and human sexuality is this, but on those issues that are unclear, we look to the denomination. Um, to, to make that decision and that interpretation. Or you could say, no, uh, on the issues that are unclear, we've set up a body here at the local church who makes those determinations for what our church believes. Um, and, and so I, I think you could really do it any way you want. Um, one of the things that the Supreme Court has said, the Supreme Court of the United States said many years ago, uh, and, and the quote is, religious beliefs do not have to be logical, consistent, or acceptable to others to merit protection. So you're not going to face this idea of the court looking at you and saying, does this make sense from our perspective, these religious beliefs that you have? Um, you're not going to find that. And so uh, however you think is best, put it in a bylaw, put it in a policy statement, put it on your, if you have a statement of faith um, that you pass or you, or you agree to as a church, you know, put it in there, something along those lines. I think it's fine. Um, so it really is just that you have something that you can point to. Because that's the issue. Can I, yeah, let me just ask one other question mm -hmm. for this, and, and I'll, I'll stop with this one. What, one of the scenarios that I can imagine taking place in my mind is that individual churches come up with slightly different, both bylaws and building use policies that's within right. the PCA. And so that in case of a suit, you might have a, 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 an attorney looking at your church policies and saying, now wait a minute, church whatever, right down the road here, is in your denomination as well and has made these yeah, I think you, you focus locally on what you have because uh, what, our, what our defense to that would be, uh, in, in, if we are ever confronted with that in the church or in a court, would be, uh, Judge, you don't sit as an arbiter of what the, what the religious belief of the church is. Um, yes, you're going to have disagreements among churches, even within the same denomination, and that's fine. But the judge does not sit as an arbiter to decide what is the correct and proper religious belief. That's something that in terms of uh, a lot of these Episcopal churches with the breakaway congregations and who owns the property and who is, um, you know, the Supreme Court has dealt with that a lot over the years, even back in the 1800s, uh, and has said we don't sit to decide who is the true church. 
Um, that's not what we do. Um, we, we decide instead, do you have a sincere religious belief? And if you do, that's it. End of, end of story. So I think you're good with that, even if there are some inconsistencies. Part of the problem would be is that, what, you know, and again, if you do have a, a misalignment with your denomination on something, you just want to make that clear. Hey, we don't agree with the denomination on this point. Um, you know, and that's okay. Yes? And that's a good point, too. And let me just make a point here that this is not... There, there's no real magic language here. Um, you know, there's no... Well, you have to say this, this, and this. The point is that you say something on the issue uh, because saying something is better than silence uh, when you're in a court. Yeah. I know you're getting ready to get policy. And, yeah. Uh, the question, which has more legal force, bylaws or policy? And maybe that could segue to talk about policy. Sure. Yeah, you know, we suggest that this go in the bylaws because I think that probably is, is a very forceful statement um, of, you know, this is what governs our church. Sometimes bylaw changes and amendments are really laborious and painful to go through. Um, I've seen church constitutions that are set up that it's just a nightmare to try to change the bylaws. If you, if you encounter that, it's better to have a policy statement and just make it clear that this policy governs the church. Um, you know, and that's okay. That's fine too. Um, and so these are. This kind of does segue to the policies that I want to talk about uh, briefly too. Um, and there are really three. And, and I'm going to yes. Yes. No. Yes, grounds would be included. Yeah, anything that's owned by the church, and. Uh, so I want to talk briefly, there's three that we have in here, uh, facilities usage policy, uh, job descriptions uh, for limiting employment opportunities, and then uh, due diligence requirements for volunteers and staff who work with children. I'm not going to talk about number three other than just to mention it. Um, it we're in a day and age where uh, for the last probably 10 to 20 years, uh, there are folks who keep track of the, number of the, the top five reasons that churches end up in court every year. And the number one reason, year after year after year, are sexual abuse claims by, by minors. And, and so this is, this is important. Make sure, I'll just mention it, make sure, this isn't really what we deal with, but make sure that you have policies in place um, where you're, you're looking at the volunteers and employees who work with children, you train them, make sure that you do background checks, that's very easy to do these days for nominal expense. Um, you know, the last thing that you want to do is find out that you have a sexual offender who you've allowed to teach your second grade Sunday school class um, and that something happens. 
so just be very careful with that. But let me talk about facilities usage for a moment. Um, this, is, uh, this is an important issue because of the homosexual agenda and others uh, who want to use uh, facilities for same-sex weddings. We're, we're encountering and we're defending a number of churches right now who are, are, are churches, religious organizations, business owners uh, who are involved in the wedding business. Um, cake makers, um, uh, florists, um, you know, any kind of wedding-related business that you can find, they have been confronted with requests to participate in ceremonies that they find offensive to their faith uh, and then sued. In fact, we're representing a florist in Washington State who the Attorney General of Washington sued this florist uh, under the consumer protection laws because she refused to use her artistic abilities to create floral arrangements for a same-sex ceremony. Now we re there's a cake shop in Colorado you probably have heard about that we're representing, Masterpiece Cakes, uh, where he refused to bake a cake and to do that uh, for a same-sex wedding. Uh, we were, we're representing him. Uh, we're also re we also represented uh, Elaine Photography in New Mexico, the photographer who was asked to photograph a same-sex commitment ceremony, uh, even though that wasn't legal in the state. And this is chilling because uh, it, in that case, that case... Uh, she refused and said, you know, my religious beliefs will not allow me to do this, to participate in this ceremony. Uh, and they sued her, and uh, she uh, lost the case. Went all the way up to the New Mexico Supreme Court, and in a very chilling decision, the New Mexico Supreme Court said that um, forcing her to photograph a same-sex commitment ceremony was, this is the quote, the price of citizenship in America. The price of citizenship is uh, really you know, forcing, uh, forcing you to violate your religious beliefs. That's what some judges believe. We took that to the U.S. Supreme Court and they declined to hear it. Um, and so this is something that's ongoing. Hawaii, when it passed its domestic partnership law, there's a statute. Um, it's now been superseded, but the statute said that if a church holds its facilities open to the public, uh, then it cannot deny use of the facilities. Um, on the basis of sexual orientation um, or gender identity, those kinds of things. So if you allow the public to use your facilities for weddings, Hawaii had said, you cannot deny use of your facilities for domestic partnerships. What, what does holding open to the public mean? It just means if you allow non-members to use your facility um, for weddings. So if you allow people to come in and say, we want to get married in your church, and you, okay, sure, you know. Um, now, that's now since been superseded. Hawaii passed a same-sex marriage law, and it has an exemption for church facilities. Maine, when it passed its same-sex marriage law, um, provided a, a, um, an exemption for church facilities. Uh, pretty much the majority of states that passed laws imposing same-sex marriage uh, have some form of exemption for pastors. Um, who, they're saying, you know, pastors cannot be forced to officiate same-sex ceremonies, um, and for churches that you can't be forced to um, have your facilities be used for same-sex ceremonies if that violates your religious beliefs. And, uh, but yet, you know, this pops up all over the place. Uh, just a few years ago, Hutchinson, Kansas, which is right in the smack dab in the middle of Kansas, tried to pass an ordinance that said the same thing, that said, you know, you, it, you must allow use of your facilities for same-sex wedding ceremonies if you allow non-members to use your facilities. Uh, and so it's my opinion that even though you have these exemptions in the law, 
it's only a matter of time before these exemptions go away. Um, and so what we, what we suggest is that you have a facilities usage policy and that it does two things. It prohibits uses that are inconsistent with your faith and it only allows uses that are consistent with your faith. And that's kind of saying the same thing. But uh, you need to make that clear. Now, in the, in the materials that you have, uh, you do have um, a sample facilities usage policy that we've put together that you can use to go off of. Um, it's not, again, there's no magic language there. Uh, we think this one's probably a pretty good one to use. You can change it, use it however you, know, you think. Uh, but every church needs to have some type of facilities usage policy uh, that will allow, uh, we'll talk about, or, or, or talk about, we only allow uses that are consistent with our religious belief. One of the things that we've committed to go to the mat on is to not allow churches to be forced to have their facilities used in ways that are inconsistent with their faith. You know, it's just, it's a non-negotiable for us. We will not, we will fight that tooth and nail all day long uh, because that's something that's very, very important. Um, Another thing are employment policies. Um, I talked a little bit about some of the employment discrimination claims that could happen. There was a case at the U.S. Supreme Court a while back, uh, a couple of years ago, called Hosanna Tabor um, versus uh, Cheryl Parrish. Um, that one was a teacher who she was fired and terminated because uh, she, she claimed it was because of her disability. She had narcolepsy. And, uh, she kept falling asleep in the classroom <laughs> as she was teaching. And so they let her go on a medical leave of absence and, uh, and was fine, and they paid her during the leave of absence and everything. And she said, I'm ready to come back now. And they said, well, it's in the middle of the school year. We already have another teacher under contract, and, and plus you haven't provided us anything that says you're over this. Um, and she says, well, if, so then she threatened to sue. And she said, well, if you don't allow me back, I'm going to sue you for employment discrimination. And the church said... Um, it was an LCMS church, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And uh, they said, well, this violates our <laughs> religious beliefs about taking uh, fellow Christians to court and uh, threatening a lawsuit, and so you're, you're fired. And uh, so then she sued them for retaliation. And uh, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, the, the issue was who was a minister in the church? Because there's something called the ministerial exception uh, for church members. So who's a minister in the church? And the court came out the right way on that. Uh, and said she, could, she was considered a minister because she, uh, had, um, she had basically uh, had, been, had been called to this position. She had a, um, a title um, you know, that, that basically, and, and this is really what we're, what we're saying. In a job description, tie the job description of the church to conveying the message of the church or the organization uh, and to fulfilling the mission and ministry of the church. So, you know, if you've got a secretary, secretary answers the phone, you know, your job, put in the description, your job is to represent the church, to, you know, convey the message of the church. Sometimes church secretaries will pray with people, they will do, you know, some type of uh, informal counseling with people who call or have problems, you know. Your job is to talk to these people in a way that's consistent with the faith and message of our church. Um, tie, that to, tie that to that and have each employee sign and agree to their job description. Now, you want to be careful with this. You don't want to, you know, say, hey, you know, Mr. Janitor, um, your job is to sweep the floors according to the message of the church. Um, uh, you know, there's probably only so far you can go with this, uh, but it's important. Um, and and I would, we are suggesting go through every job in your church 
and, and put together a job description that ties it to the, to the faith and the message and the communication of that message to the church. Um, if you have something like a Christian school, um, have your teachers pray uh, with, their, with their classes if they don't already. Have them lead chapel with their classes. The more that you can integrate religious faith into the classroom, the better um, because that's going to allow you. Um, consider having a, a commissioning ceremony for your employees. You know, we as a church are calling you to this position, um, whatever it may be, as a Christian school teacher or um, as, you know, whatever it may be, uh, whatever position you have. Consider, you know, some type of a commissioning ceremony because um, that may actually, that, that will help. That's one of the things that, deter- that the Supreme Court relied upon um, in determining that this, this Christian school teacher was a minister such that uh, they were not going to, um, they weren't going to say, uh, this was employment discrimination. Um, consider using a title that reflects the, the religious leadership role of the position. And a lot of this I'm kind of going through a little bit quickly because I want to get to a, kind of a second point here or second part of things that I want to talk about uh, in the remaining minutes that we have. But the basic gist of this is consider the employment positions in your church and how do they relate to conveying the doctrine and the message of the church. The more that you can tie that and use documents to do that, the more that you can tie those two together, the job, employ- the job and the mission and the message of the church, the more that you can tie those two together using documents, the more protections that you're going to have under the law when, when an employee says, you can't fire me, you can't do this. Uh, and you can say, yes, I can, because this is our religious belief. Um, and we are, you know, your job is to live a life and to convey and to do your job in a way that's consistent with our religious beliefs. Could that yes. also apply to volunteers? Uh, I think it probably could, yes. Uh, it doesn't need to be quite as formal with that. I would always suggest to having any volunteer sign your statement of faith, that we agree to abide by the statement of faith uh, with that. Uh, and again, if a volunteer is working with children, that's when all of those policies need to be triggered as well, uh, involving children. Um, so I want to move now to um, really another, another thing that ADF has been working on and I've specifically been working on for the last eight years. Uh, and this is in regard to the ability of, of pastors to speak freely from their pulpits because this is another threat to religious freedom uh, that has, re- has been going on um, and, and really has kind of crept in unnoticed uh, for the past 60 years. Um, and it's related to the Johnson Amendment. Um, many of you have heard of the Johnson Amendment. Some of you may not have. This is the, uh, it's the last sentence of Section 501c3 of the tax code. And this sentence, you can see it up there, nonprofit entities, which include churches, cannot participate in or intervene in, including the publishing or distributing of statements, any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for public office. This is, these are part of the 501c3 restrictions on, on churches. Uh, this is called the Johnson Amendment. It's named after Lyndon B. Johnson, we're here from the great state of Texas, uh, who was uh, running for re-election in 1954 uh, to a term, an, an, another term in the U.S. Senate. He had become a very powerful senator. He was being opposed by a young man, uh, a first-term state senator uh, from Beeville, Texas, uh, named Dudley Dougherty. Wasn't Johnson really was supposed to sail through to re-election. Um, and in fact, he, he started taking to derogatorily calling him the young man from Beeville, um, his opponent. And he was, just, he was supposed to get, gain election pretty easily until, until two 
very powerful nonprofit organizations and the men that they were run by entered the election. Uh, one was H.L. Hunt, who was a Texas oil billionaire, uh, and the other was Frank Gannett, who was a publishing mogul. Gannett Media is, is still around today. Um, and those two men had two nonprofit organizations. One was called Facts Forum, one was called the Committee for Constitutional Government. They believed that Johnson was soft on communism. You know, this was back during the era of McCarthyism and all of that. They believed he was soft on communism, and uh, they started passing out thousands of pieces of literature opposing Johnson's candidacy to the U.S. Senate and supporting Dougherty. Johnson um, was, was not a man to be trifled with. <laughs> he had a bombastic temper and tried to find many ways to silence these groups, including going to the IRS and saying, aren't they violating any law? And the IRS said, no, they're not doing anything wrong. And so he hit on an idea. July 2nd, 1954, he, Johnson showed up on the floor of the U.S. Senate in the midst of this campaign, and he offered an amendment to an existing bill that was pending before the Senate. It was a massive modernization of the tax code, huge bill. And the legislative history of the Johnson Amendment, this one line, is literally two paragraphs long in the congressional record. And as Mr. Johnson shows up, Senator Johnson shows up and says, I have an amendment. The speaker or the, the sponsor of the bill has agreed to the amendment. The speaker called for a, a voice vote and it unanimously passed. It went to Congress or to the conference committee with the House. Uh, and on August 16, 1954, President Eisenhower signed this into law. No discussion, no debate, no committee hearings, no anything um, about the impact or the effect that this might have on the constitutional rights of pastors and churches. It crept in unnoticed. But yet, Churches, this was applied to churches because churches occupy the same 501c3 status as the two nonprofit organizations that Johnson was really after to try to silence H.L. Uh, Hunt's organization and Frank Gannett's organization. Uh, and so, what's happened since then is the IRS has become the prime enforcer of this. And there's been 60 years of increasingly vague guidance from the IRS on how do we interpret this and how do we apply this. They'll say things like, well, Churches are prohibited from directly or indirectly participating in a campaign. Well, how many of you know what an indirect participation in a campaign is? I don't either. Uh, attorneys can argue over words, but this is just ridiculous. Um, this is not clear at all. Uh, they say things like, well, we will consider all the facts and circumstances of each situation. And this is bureaucratic speak for saying, we're not going to tell you in advance with certainty and precision what violates the Johnson Amendment. We're going to wait until you act and then we'll consider all the facts and circumstances of what you did and tell you if you violated the law. Um, very vague. They even went so far one time in some field guidance to their, their agents who were enforcing this to say, well, you could violate 501c3, the Johnson Amendment, by the use of code words. You don't even have to say, vote for John Smith. If you said something, vote pro-life. And that was an issue that divided the candidates. Well, maybe that's enough to violate the Johnson Amendment. And... Then the, then the Johnson Amendment has been used as a tool for special interest groups over the years. The primary culprit here is Americans United for Separation of Church and State, the Reverend Barry Lynn. And uh, they have what's called their Project Fair Play, which is to stop illegal church electioneering. Uh, and they'll send out thousands of letters. Some of you may have gotten these letters uh, saying, you know, don't you dare say anything during election season because you could draw an audit from the IRS with penalties and enforcement and... You know, it's basically a scare tactic um, is what, it, what has happened. And so the predictable result of all of this over the last 60 years 
is that we have a church that is afraid to confront the issues of politics, especially during an election season. Many churches are just afraid. They just, and, and, and they, don't, they don't go anywhere near it. So let me give you an example. If, if you know as a pastor or as a church, well, the, the line is, is out here somewhere between what's permitted and what's not. I don't exactly know where that line is. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to step back from that line because of the uncertainty involved and, and because you don't want to violate the law. You want to do what's right. And so you're, you're, if you don't exactly know what conduct violates the law and what doesn't, you step back from that line. So this gap in here is what's called self-censorship. A vague law by the government creates self-censorship. And so you censor yourselves out of kind of not knowing where the law is, where the line is. Uh, and so... As we looked at this, we thought, well, how in the world can we bring a lot more certainty to this? Because uh, this essentially gives the ability of the IRS to come in and control what a pastor says from the pulpit and to make a determination, did a pastor speak in a way that violated the Johnson Amendment such that we could punish the church? Um, now, you know, that strikes me as odd uh, that we would allow a government agency to have any control over what is expounded from our pulpits. That's never happened before in American history at all, ever. In fact, pastors frequently spoke out during election times, both for and against candidates when their stated positions conflicted with biblical values. Even going back to the election with Thomas Jefferson, many churches, pastors, some thought he was a deist. And uh, we've got sermons in black and white where pastors were saying, do not vote for Jefferson, he'll throw your Bibles down into the wells. Um, you know, and, and you won't be able to abide by your religious beliefs anymore. Um, so, as we thought about this, we thought, well, how can we bring certainty to this? And, and the idea is, is Pulpit Freedom Sunday, and we've been doing this since 2008. Some of you may have heard of this, but this is a day for pastors to reclaim their freedom of the pulpit. Um, and really what's involved in this is very simple. Pastors prepare and preach an election sermon. That's it. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about what specifically that is. Um, but over the years, it's grown. We started in 2008 with 33 pastors and 33 churches. Uh, they, these pastors on one particular day preached a sermon that talked about the stated positions of the candidates uh, in terms of what does the Bible say about those stated positions. Uh, they compared their positions with what does Scripture say and church doctrine. And then they made a recommendation to the congregation based upon this is what the candidate says they believe, this is what scripture says, now here's the recommendation about what we ought to do as Christians and how we ought to vote. Uh, and they recorded their sermons and they sent them off to the IRS. And they said, here we are, if you have any questions about this, you know how to reach us. Uh, and that may seem like a very in-your-face strategy, but part of the reason is for that is that we can't just go out tomorrow and declare and file a lawsuit against the Johnson Amendment. We have to wait for the IRS to apply it against a church, to have them enforce it, and to issue penalties, and then challenge it. The problem is, is that the IRS has become very adept at, at keeping this issue out of court. Do you know in the 60 years since the Johnson Amendment has been passed, not one court anywhere in the country has ever had the opportunity to decide if it's constitutional for the IRS to censor a pastor's sermon. That issue has never seen the light of day of a courtroom. And that's something that we'd, we'd like to change. Uh, and so... Uh, as you can see, participation has grown um, over the years. Uh, last year was, was an off-election year, and so participation kind of fell a little bit. 
But we're doing Pulpit Freedom Sunday again this year, October 5th of 2014. Uh, and you have a green card in front of you. Uh, and if you're a pastor and you'd like to sign up for Pulpit Freedom Sunday, I'd encourage you to fill out, start to fill out that card uh, and uh, turn it in to me uh, at the end of, of, of this talk. But I'm sure you've heard by now of all of the churches who participated in Pulpit Freedom Sunday, the vast number of audits, the churches that are closing because they've been forced to by the IRS and all of this. You've heard about that? No. The IRS hasn't said a word. Not one church that's participated has been punished or censored by the IRS for doing this. This is not about turning the church, though, into a political action committee. Uh, It's not about any particular candidate or party. It's, It's actually not about political speech from the pulpit. It's not. This is biblical speech from the pulpit. Um, you know, one of the things that's happened over the years is that uh, the church has, um, biblical issues have been turned into political issues. Um, if you would have said, you know, 30 years ago, um, you know, tearing up a baby in the womb is, is wrong, it's murder, it's unbiblical, many would have said, that's true, pastor. Uh, and, and today they would say, well, pastor, you're, you're being political. Um, you'd say the same thing about same-sex marriage, homosexual behavior, whatever it may be. Culture advances on biblical issues and biblical values, and as culture advances uh, on those, they're turning biblical values into political values and then telling pastors and churches, you now have to stay out of it. Uh, and so it's not that by speaking on these issues, the church is invading in the realm of politics. It's that politics is invaded in the realm of the church. And so the church has a, has a question, has a choice to make. Do we allow that to happen and we back away from those issues or do we stand firm on those theological issues and beliefs that we hold and continue to confront and expound on those? Even as it relates to the issue of candidates and elections. Um, Because I think for too long, candidates uh, have gotten a free pass from moral scrutiny by the church. And and how's that working out for us? Um, I think we all know. So what's required? Basically, all you need to do is sign up to participate. You prepare an election sermon. This could be as specific or as general as you want. It can be as general. You can, you can stay within the IRS guidelines if you'd like and, pre- and preach an election sermon by talking about the values and, and the issues confronting the, the, the election. Or you can be as specific as you want. Um, and you can make recommendations as to candidates. The point is, this is your sermon. It's your election sermon. Um, it, it could be whatever you want, whatever your congregation needs to hear. You know them best. Uh, and the point is to exercise your right to freely speak. Uh, and then you preach on October 5th, 2014, or as close to that as possible. That's really all it is. That's all that's involved. Uh, and if the IRS comes after your church in any way for something that's said from the pulpit, ADF will represent you free of charge. Uh, we've said that to pastors over and over and over. Our job and our goal is to hopefully um, to have the Johnson Amendment declared unconstitutional but more importantly, to have the church not cower in fear over un- not, not knowing where the line is and, and what, is, what is permissible and what's not. Uh, and so if you're a pastor and you want to sign up for Pulpit Freedom Sunday, I encourage you to fill out that card right now and then turn it in to me before we, before, as we leave here. And we're just about at the end of our time here, uh, but as, we, as you leave. You can also find out more information about this at pulpitfreedom.org. Um, there is a packet on there that uh, it's called a recruiting packet that you could take and, and give to other pastors, give to your pastor if you're not one. Um, and you can tell uh, your pastor, here's what this is all about. I think this is a great thing. 
um, you might want to check into it more. It'll explain it uh, about what it is. Um, the, the point is, is, again, to protect the right of the, of the pastor to speak freely from the pulpit. Uh, because if we allow for the government to intrude into what is said from the pulpit on the issue of candidates and elections, which we've allowed for the last 60 years, that's not going to stop there. That will continue to come after us. Uh, and, and it will continue to encroach on the pulpit um, in, in numerous ways and probably unforeseen ways. You know, 20, 30 years down the road, we may be saying, how did we get here? Uh, and we can look back and trace it to the fact we allowed this to happen. And so our job now as a church, as a church of Jesus Christ in America, our job is to draw a very firm line and to say the government has no business intruding into the realm of the pulpit at all, period, end of story. And that's what this is about. That's all that this is about. It's to protect the right of the proclamation of the gospel because that's really where this is going to head. Uh, and so we've got to draw that firm line now and to hold to the sanctity of the pulpit. So I would encourage you to sign up for that. Turn in that card if you're a pastor, if you're interested. Uh, but definitely get other pastors and churches to pulpitfreedom.org uh, and let them know. Uh, I know we're, we're at the end of our time here. We need to probably get out of the room so the other uh, sessions can get going. But I'll be out in the hallway and uh, it will be available to answer some questions if you have. Uh, but I appreciate your time and your willingness to come and hear about these issues. Just know that uh, ADF is here for you. You've got our contact information and the materials. If your church is facing a religious freedom issue or if you're unsure whether it's a religious freedom issue, call us. Uh, we've got attorneys that can stand by and ready to help you and protect your church's religious freedom. And we do all of our work free of charge. We don't charge you anything. There are copies on the website, absolutely. Um, and in fact, I believe the website address is there, um, but it is, um, it's a little bit different. It, it, we're redesigning our website, but our website is going to be uh, alliancedefendingfreedom.org. So within the next couple of months, that's, that'll all be on there. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces. Thank you.